What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Fitness Oracle. Today, we sit down with Benjamin Mole, who is the host of Sustaining Sports Podcast. He's an avid sports fan, and he takes a very unique look into where sports may be heading. In this episode, we get into sustainability in sports, mental health, gender bias, and corruption in the sports world. This is a very interesting podcast and kind of a little out of the scope, but we talk about like some very uh, deep, deep stuff. So it's, um, it, it will resonate with a lot of you listening and watching this, uh, this podcast, because we get into other topics like, like, you know, gambling and, you know, and all that stuff. It's going to be a really good episode. I know you guys are going to enjoy this one. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Welcome to the Fitness Oracle, where we have real conversations with real people just like you, with real stories just like yours. And this is one of their stories. I am your host, John Katsavos. My guest today is Ben Mole from Sustaining Sports Podcast. Sport is something he holds very close to his heart. It is one of the great joys of the human condition for athletes and spectators alike. It brings happiness, livelihood, and physical health and provides an education in teamwork, discipline, maturity, and humility. But for this to continue, sports around the world must acknowledge challenges, both current and future, and internal and external. Steps must be taken to overcome what faces them or risk losing what so many people hold so dear. He has been in the sports industry for an extended period of time. And uh, now he's putting his money where his mouth is. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I've never actually heard that uh, sort of out loud. So I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Sounds quite good, actually. I'd listen to that podcast. <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting podcast, I have to tell you. Um, I've been listening to a couple of your shows. They're pretty good. Um, how's that coming along, the podcast? How are you liking it? Well, firstly, thank you uh, for listening to a couple of episodes, and I'd you know love to get your perspective um, in coming at it from a, a you know a different side of the world and that kind of stuff. Um, I am enjoying making the show. It's already changed a little bit from what it was uh, when I started. I thought I was going to do these lots of like big introspective deep dives, which I still do, and I you know I still enjoy doing. But I've realized that that is just too much of a time commitment because obviously you know, there's all the fact checking all this kind of stuff so i'm more you know almost going towards your podcasting model where you bring on uh, experts in whatever field and and talk to them so the ratio of the style of episodes has changed but the actual i think you know the the um the actual goal is still the same which i enjoy well it's good because uh it gives a different perspective on sports because um for the lot like I'm guilty of it. Just like everybody else is like, I used to, I used to love sports. Um, after COVID it just sports kind of derailed me because I, my, my, my focus and my attention went somewhere else. And, uh, looking back now and it's like, uh, I'm looking at sports now and I'm like, I could be, I could be utilizing my 90 minutes somewhere else, somewhere better, more effective. 
So trying to get a different perspective, different angle on uh, something that I used to love. Like I'm a big hockey and soccer where uh, in England and the rest of the world, they call it football. Um, I used to be a huge fan, TFC fan all the way forever red. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> and uh leaf fan till I die, no matter how, ne- never mind. No, I'm, a, the- I'm a Canadians fan. So how does, oh, oh. Oh, okay. The Canadians, the Canadians have won a Stanley cup in the nineties. The Leafs haven't won a Stanley cup since 1967. Still counting. <laughs> but uh, what got you interested in this line of work? Well, I mean, I think I can actually build on your own comment about what happened to you in COVID and then answer your question. I had something similar happen to me with sport, uh, especially during COVID one. It was just the volume. Like I like so many sports. I'd say my big three are um, soccer, cricket, and rugby, which I'm from South Africa, and those are the big three. And I love those. But I mean, even within those sports, if you follow your club and your country and all the games that are being played, um, I'm a big like English Premier League fan. So Liverpool's my team. We've just played the most number of games in, in a season ever. It is a bit much, if I'm honest. Um, and what you start to realize is that sport is not necessarily a um this fun thing that that the brands want you to make it sound like it is a commodity and it is a form of entertainment and they're pushing this form of entertainment as much as they can um so you know i used to think that like oh you know footballs or soccer is competing with um other soccer teams to see who like um you know who they can get the most fans to watch what is actually happening is football or soccer is competing with netflix it's competing with disney plus it's competing for your time and I am the same as you in that I sort of had to pull back a bit as in I just don't have the time. I can't watch all of my teams all the time as much as I want to. So then to answer your question, I just think there is value to sport that is beyond financial and entertainment. And I think there should be certain checks and balances in place to make sure that the sports are preserved in a bit more of that way i understand they need to make money or else they couldn't exist or like no one you know none of these athletes could make a living out of it but i just something sometimes think it goes too far and that's actually kind of why i started the podcast is um looking at themes around sport you know problems within sport which often reflect the problems within society but also how sport can be used as a tool to help with some of these problems um and yeah i think there's a there's really uh, a lot of value there and a lot that can be done there's a there's a lot that i want to dive into that statement alone because uh you said something really important um there's a difference with some sports and we're going to deep dive into this 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 question i'm just putting it out there just so i can remind myself there's a difference with some sports where in some countries and the bankroll that comes with those countries and how much they invest in their in, in their athletes compared to others. And what exactly do you mean by um, for the athlete to make a living? Because if it's just to get by, they shouldn't be signing the nine figure, 10 figure salaries that some of these players do. But we'll get oh, so it's you. You're so right. It's definitely gone too far. Yeah, we'll we'll deep dive into that, but um, just just to re- just to close off this section of thing before we deep dive into that question is, I want to know if have there been any moments where you've just wanted to quit? 
Um, a few, I'd say probably my worst moment was about seven months ago now where I looked into gambling in, in sports and, you know, the relationship between the gambling industry and the sports industry. And, you know, there was so much, I, you know, for me, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not saying you should never gamble, but I just think that the way the gambling industry is handled, it doesn't give people enough protection and education about what they're doing and can actually be quite um, deceptive to the potential betters in, in how the process works. Um, and obviously that's a huge area of revenue for sports, um, is the gambling industry. So that was probably my low moment when I realized that, yeah, a lot of sports, uh, especially some lower sports teams kind of depend on gambling money and yeah, the idea that sport couldn't exist in the way I wanted to perhaps without gambling money was, you know, a particularly low point and even just researching into, um, how much gambling companies know how damaging their product is um, was a real low one for me. I'm, again, I'm not saying you should never ever gamble. I occasionally throw out a punt or two, but yeah, I mean, something like 80% of revenues in the gambling industry come from gambling at problem, problematic gambling addicts and the gambling companies know that and they're not doing anything about it. And yeah, that was probably my low moment. And yeah, um, you have to have those moments of mental clarity, clarity where it's like, all right, you, you're, you've chosen a career that addresses these kind of problems and you can't get put down by these kind of problems, but that one was a big one for me. Okay, I'm chewing at the bit right now just to deep dive into this because I was going to save this towards the end, but I, 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 can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> All right. Um, you said the big part, the, the, the big problem is the gambling part of, uh, of sports. And I completely and utterly agree with you. Like um, outside of Canada and outside of Canada, my favorite soccer club, my favorite football club is Olympiacos in Athens. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at their, if you look at the Greek super league, it's filled with corruption because Olympiacos is the ones are the ones that are doing the corruption. Cause the second they get into the European, the, the, the champions league, they're very lucky if they get out. How can how can a club how can a how can a country like um, let's say like the Greek Super League how can they be able to um, up their next up their level to get more more of their clubs into the bigger um, the bigger the bigger Champions Leagues? I know in Europe the European uh, football is different than the American football. We here we have a more of a a revenue sharing system with our clubs, like new clubs, champions and the other clubs, they help the other lower clubs build themselves up. Do you think that could be a, uh, a solution? I mean, a lot of the European leagues were definitely suffering almost at the expense of, of, of each other. I'll give you the best example that in Germany, they have this ownership style called the 51% rule where the fans own 51% of the club, which I think is an amazing rule. I think it keeps German football a bit more honest than a lot of the other um, uh, uh, leagues. The problem is they are not operating in a bubble, right? That the Premier League in England or La Liga in Spain, et cetera, are not operating under that rule, therefore can financially go to the moon, so to speak. And they're getting that sponsorship from the Middle East and from, um, well, slightly less recently, but from Russia. And Therefore, you know, great German players, or if a player makes it you know, well in the German league, they survive. They probably survive there about two or three seasons before they get picked off. The best example already is um, 
Erling Haaland, who's this Norwegian wonder kid who's just um, signed from Borussia Dortmund's gone over to Man City. Like that is just so textbook now of what has happened. So these leagues to some degree are the slower leagues, shall we say, or the smaller leagues. Uh, I don't want to say lower because they are top level in their own country, but they are beholden to these bigger leagues. So yeah, my argument would be a bit of regulation, uh, you know, kind of how, how they have in the NFL, salary caps, that kind of thing. The problem is it would require some European body to say across the board, salary caps. An institution like UEFA or FIFA could do that. It's not in their interest to do that because they make money from all of these things as well. So that's not going to happen. Um, so yeah, I, I almost sometimes understand, you know, uh, perhaps a lower Greek side turning to a gambling company who's offering them a huge amount of money to maybe um, go up the ranks. But yeah, it's a bit of a catch-22. The, the, the problem with that is because I see it when I'm watching some of this uh, Greek football, and it's you can see the game being thrown by the refs. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I, I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure on the specifics of Greek football specific, like specifically, but um, you, can, you can just tell how vulnerable games like soccer or even sport in general is to corruption when it is so prevalent in countries that often you know still um on the scale of development yet these sports are so popular um there was a there's been ongoing scandals particularly in the game of cricket uh, and particularly in the country of pakistan you know there's pakistan's a massive country in terms of population their cricket um side and their cricket clubs are absolutely adored but there's a weird thing in the game of cricket that it is possible for you to do certain things that don't necessarily affect the outcome whilst can be bet on so it's perfect for match fixing if that makes any sense there's a thing in cricket called a no ball where if you stand over the line when you're bowling which is the cricket equivalent of pitching if you stand over that line it's a no ball and you have to retake it so you can bet on a you know it's very uncommon for more than one of those um for the for the bowler to get to that happen a lot but you can bet saying oh i want i'm expecting the bowler to do that 10 times this over for example and that bowler can do it without throwing the game you know what I mean? He doesn't have to miss a shot or something like that. He can just do that. Uh, and there's, there's other examples in football, um, things like um, players purposely getting yellow cards or giving away corners because you can bet on that. Um, and yeah, it's just so it's so vulnerable. And again, we need support systems and checks and balances to make sure that gambling and uh, corruption don't get a further foothold in sport, because as you say, it is it is a prevalent thing. Yeah, here here in America and Canada, it's uh it's hard to do it with sport with sports like hockey uh hockey it's it's very hard to do because it's very um it's, it's a very linear game yes well but games like uh, baseball for example baseball is the equivalent of cricket in my eyes and yeah they're very similar extremely similar um football american football uh which is like rugby to me <laughs> <laughs> they have a, they have a they have a shared history, so you're not wrong on that either. Yeah, and um, and we just got introduced to soccer, but the format here is the format here is we we took from the NFL, all the rest of the clubs, all the rest of the associations, MLS, NHL, uh, NBA, and the uh, ML, uh, MLB the, for basket basketball, baseball hockey and soccer, they all took from the NFL because it was a very, um, it, it was a very profitable way of doing business in sports. Yes. And it 
the problem is it benefits only the owners. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that you can learn from the American sports system. I, I, I'm personally quite a big fan of the draft. Like, I think it's a cool way of making sure that lots of teams get different talent. Whereas in, you know, European football or European soccer, it is exclusively money that decides um, where the best best players go. I also like the um, salary caps they have, but there are other elements of uh, the American side of sport that I think are quite dangerous. One of which is definitely the sort of, you know, just squeezing it for every dollar it's worth i understand that it's profitable and then you can reinvest that money so i understand why that's effective but you know um watching a game of american football is quite a difficult thing for me as a sports fan because you end up watching more uh, advertising than you do sport so that that's that's part of the part of the problem there and i agree you can see why the other leagues in in the states have done that because they're like wow the nfl is getting all the share of the viewers so we have to do something to stay competitive um but yeah, you know, it's, it's so hard because sport is forever going to be a business, but I just wish it was less beholden to all of the business powers that, um, that come with that. And yeah, my classic example is that a team would rather have a million, so we say soft fans who all buy a jersey than a thousand rock solid diehard fans. And that is sad to me. That's almost a problem because, you know, the, a lot of these stories that were built around these football teams or these sports teams were built on, you know, working class people giving their life, heart and soul to these clubs over the years. And that's almost been commodified now and is being pushed on a global scale. Um, and yeah, it's, it's some, at some point you lose, at some point you lose the spirit of it at some, I don't know where that point is, but at some point it ticks over. Yeah. Um, do you think that uh, the Europeans, the Europeans will ever look, I think I kind of asked that question, but let me ask it in a different way. Do, do you think there's any pitfalls, especially doing, because Europe is like a bunch of different countries. It's about what, 52, 53 different countries in, in Europe, where in America, it's basically three countries, well, not including the Caribbean, it's Canada, US and Mexico. And it's easy for, it's easy for us to regulate something like that. What kind of problems do you see, or do you ever see Europe? trying to implement something that we have here in America? Yeah, so I think it's a really good question. And I think you raised the right issue in terms of well, the, the problem is that Europe is dependent on you know all these different countries and the different political systems within that. However, there are institutions that can regulate it. It's in you know the global sense is FIFA. This is for soccer, of course. And for the European sense, it's uh, UEFA. However, from the way I see it, UEFA are in a conflict of interest because they stand to benefit both financially and in terms of um, influence from these excessive salaries, all that kind of stuff. You know, the more money that pours into European football, the better UEFA do. They are the ones who organize the Champions League final, which I just attended as a Liverpool fan um, and we lost. Uh, so yeah, they, they make money out of these things. So they're never going to try and, you know, dampen it. They're never going to um, try and say, hang on, are we going too far here? Um, so yeah, it's just, it's like any situation. If there's not an independent regulator, you can never trust it to be managed for the best of, yeah, all the constituents, shall we say. Do you think at some point in time that's going to change? I think it's going to change a little bit. Um, and that is based on one observation. I actually got out of Greek football, would you believe? I was um, moderating a panel at a conference regarding Greek um, football, Greek soccer, 
And one of the other speakers, who, so like I had a chance to listen to all those speakers while I was there. One of the other speakers raised a very interesting point around the competitiveness of the game and fan interest. And his research found that if your team had more than a 90% chance of winning, the fans start losing interest. But by the same token, if they had less than a 30% chance of winning, they also start losing interest. The sweet spot is around 60%. If your team has about a 60% chance of winning, that'll get you the most engaged because you're optimistic, but you know there's something to lose. And the way that money and sport is working right now is not lending itself to these close fixtures. Um, you know, The best teams have so much money and buy the best players that they almost have a 100% chance of winning. And so it's just not fun for the fans because you sit down there and you're like, unless my team wins 5-0, I'll be disappointed. And that's not how sport should work. Um, so yeah, that might force some change, but it'll take a long time for these institutions to realize that, unfortunately. I would like change tomorrow. To answer your question, I think it'll change in like 30 years. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's interesting because um, even their fan, even the fan mentality in Europe is completely different than what it is here in Toronto, in, in Canada, in Canada and the US, because here in Canada and US, it's very, it's, um, it's team based. Where, yes. where in, and the team is specific to the sport that they're playing. Like Toronto has uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Toronto Blue Jays, the Toronto uh, the, the Lacrosse, the Toronto Rock, uh, the I said the Blue Jays, the Toronto Argonauts. So four, four or five different, and Toronto FC, which is five, five different teams. In Europe, it's 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 club based to the point where it's like we have the same team across all different sports. Yeah, I've seen that's more common in um, in uh, Spain. Like the Real Madrid has a basketball team. It has, you know, it's Real Madrid for all of these different sports. It's quite interesting, right? So it means if you do want to transcend as a fan from different sports and you are from Madrid and you support Real Madrid soccer team, you're much more inclined to support all of the other teams. So I'm not really sure how I feel about that. I suppose from a purely business perspective it would make sense if your sport is less popular and you can attach yourself to the brand of for example real madrid that would be quite beneficial for you but yeah obviously they then they, they lose a certain degree of independence there's an interesting thing happening in um women's soccer in the uk which is slowly starting to uh uh, take off and i'm very pleased about that it's something i've been advocating for a long time on my podcast is the, the promotion of the women of women's sport across the board but what is happening unfortunately is that because a lot of these clubs have a similar location and that kind of stuff, or they're from the same city, they've, they were maybe independently started for a while, but now have been absorbed into the, um, into the same business and the same branding model. So now the Manchester City women's team plays in the same kit as the Manchester City men's team, which again, from a business perspective is nice because that Manchester City women's team can get a load more revenue and maybe probably gets a, big, a slightly bigger fan base and stuff. But it's not strictly fair because if the Manchester City men's team does particularly well, that improves the brand and filters down to the women's team, regardless of their performance. Whereas there might be a team, I think that maybe, maybe there's a team in Charlton or something. I, I, I can't remember this a specific one off the top of my head, but there are women's teams that are not attached to a men's team who, even though they can perform very well, don't have that sway or that um, helping hand from anywhere. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting point that's happening in sport, but it's not, it's not functioning exactly as it should. 
It's interesting that you said that. Um, I, I mean, I'm glad that the women's uh, uh, football is, uh, is increasing in, in the UK. I know in Canada, uh, women's football and women's, well, women's hockey league actually just fizzled out. There wasn't too much interest in it. Which is, it is what it is. I mean, it's, I, I understand that it's based off of ratings and everything. It, the money part of sports is something that um, it's based off of a business model. Yeah. Is there another model that we can integrate? I know in Canada, women's soccer is, is booming because of their performance on the world stage. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you raise an interesting point about ratings. For me, I think we need to give it quite a long time to see if there's any credence to that idea. Because like, if we dive into it a bit more, the classic argument around women's sport is, oh, not enough people watch women's sport, therefore we won't invest in women's sport. But no one's ever invested in women's sport to know if that would have been the case. You know, it's that kind of like um, circular reasoning thing. Like the, your, your answer is also your question. So, yeah, I think what we need is just to try it for a decade or two. I know that sounds ridiculous and it's very hard to sell an investor on a 20, 30, 40 year return. But yeah, let's, let's try a couple of generations of female athletes who get the funding to do what they want to do, to try and do what they want to do, to have the role models to do what they want to do, to have the coaching, to have the training. And then let's see where um, people are at. One of my, I think it was actually my first episode of my podcast was about women's sport. And the reason it, it motivated, or specifically how the, there's a lack of investment in um, English women's soccer, the key sort of game that got me in, invested in that was I watched, a, I think it was a women's World Cup qualifier with Scotland and Finland. And it was just one of the most entertaining games I've ever seen in my life. You know, last minute goals, end to end. It was still the spectacle of soccer. It was still the risk. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, but those players aren't as fast and they're not as strong. And I'm like, but that's not even why I watch men's football either. You know, like when I go down to my local team and go watch them, they are not the fastest and the strongest players in the world. But the game is still exciting because it's the narrative of the game. You know, who, who might win? There's a story. And all of those things still apply in um, the women's side of sport. So, yeah, let's give them a try. Let's give them the full investment that they need. Um, it will take some, you know, shall we say upfront investment that, it might look quite high risk because you're, you know, to invest in a sport like this and maybe increase ticket sales 10 years down the line is a hard ask, but there's no way to know for sure unless we try it. And actually as a case study of this, the U S women's soccer team is one of the few that has been given that support and that cultural support, the country getting behind them and they're, and they're reaping the, the rewards. Right. So, yeah. No, absolutely. And uh, uh, the, the WNBA is uh, one of those things like you, you've seen it. I've seen it. I haven't really been following it too much because I'm not really following sports that much. Uh, yeah. But the WNBA is one of those leaders that it's been around for about 15, 20 years now. Yes. And, and yeah, uh, you also you raise that point again, there is too much sports. So if we now double it and say, I'm going to watch all of my teams and I'm going to watch the women's version of my teams. My schedule is looking tight. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, you, you raise another interesting point about investors. Investors always look for the long-term gain. They do look for that 20, 30 year, um, you, know, you know, what am I going to get in 20, 30 years? I mean, if they didn't, they wouldn't have bought like, you know, sky rises in New York and Manhattan. They wouldn't. So 
is there is there another avenue like somebody can actually look to these investors and say you know what what if this was like your daughter playing and this was her heart and her soul kind of thing is there like i i I, I, I hear what you're saying, although I think, you know, when they when it comes to like a 20 year real estate investment, I think people only do that because they know it's a sure thing, whereas to invest in like the women's side of the game, it's not currently perceived as a sure thing. So I think what will change that is a little bit of incremental evidence and yeah, some success stories. I think the US women's soccer team is providing such success stories at the moment. You mentioned the WNBA, but yeah, it's happening here too. And I think it's also companies... You know, sometimes they do it for the wrong reasons. You know, they're, they're trying to sort of stay ahead of trends and stuff, which we can argue the ethics about, or we can discuss the ethics about. I'm not too bothered about it as long as the money comes through. So there's definitely gonna be brands that are wanting to place themselves as the brand that is in charge as this thing takes off, right? Because that's the other thing. If you don't want to get in too late, if the women's league goes through the roof and just gets twice, 10 times the viewership, you wanted to be that exclusive partner last year, not next year kind of thing so yeah there's a little gamble involved but um the way i see the industry right now a lot more brands are considering it than we're considering it five years ago i'm see i i'm seeing it here i'm seeing it here there's a lot of brands and big name brands that are uh not just going behind like uh, wnba players or women's soccer club uh women's soccer team players but also in canada women's hockey in Canada, like one of the one of the leading uh, women in hockey is uh, one of the most. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She's one of the most celebrated uh, athletes in women's hockey, and she's like all over the place. Yeah, yeah. and as, and as soon as you see, as soon as brands see that these players become as marketable as the men, the male players, then yeah, that's when the money will start rolling in. And then again, let's see what happens. And I think I mentioned it earlier, but role models are so important. Like, how are you to decide to become a professional sports person if you've never seen anyone of your sex performing at that level? Once you do see that, that gives you the incentive and, 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 the, and the belief to go for it. I know when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional um, athlete. And the reason being is that the people I idolized were professional athletes. I wasn't inventing it. I wasn't like, oh, so we're all, basically, we've basically been asking um, young girls for the last hundred years or so to invent the idea of them being sort of completely successful and independent athletes. And some of them have done it. You know, we think of like, obviously there's the big names like um, Megan Rapinoe and all this kind of stuff. And they're, they're amazing and they're, they're trailblazers, but we need more of them. And then we need the, the generation that comes afterwards that didn't have to fight so many barriers to just get to the level that they could then attempt to play well at. Sorry, I just reminded myself, uh, Christine Sinclair is a Canadian, uh, women's Canadian soccer, soccer, soccer player. So nice. she's actually really pushing hard with uh, girls and women going into soccer. And if that's, if that, if that is their dream to keep going. So yes. my next point I want to talk about is the, the difference in paychecks between men's soccer and well, men's men, athletes, male athletes, and female athletes. There's a giant gap between there. Yes, it's huge. Um, I think I did. It's probably changed slightly now, but I checked last year and if you look at the English Premier League soccer, the average salary for men's, like that is the average. There are obviously some big names at the top who are getting a lot more, but the average salary for the men's is about th three million pounds a year, which is pretty decent salary. That's an average. Whereas the average women's salary was 18,000 pounds a year. So, I mean, just an astronomical difference in 
average salary at the top division. And you can see how that would completely dissuade literally hundreds of thousands of people from pursuing that career path. If that's the difference in potential outcome. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the, the paychecks that the athletes get is based off of not just performance, but like you said, marketability. Um, how long do you think it's going to change before, you know, there's, I wouldn't say equal wage gap, but a little bit more realistic. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I know at, at least at a national level, I'm totally in favor of, um, the players being play, like paid equally. And I know that's what the women's US soccer team has been going for. And I think that's such an amazing achievement. And they've worked so hard to get that. At the club level, I'm a little, I, 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 as I say, I'm trying to be realistic. I just don't think it'll happen in, in definitely not in the near term because we are subjected to supply and demand. Um, and yeah, even if there is 5% more viewership of the men's game, then there will be higher salaries in the men's game. But my goodness, can we equalize it a, a, a lot without it still being, you know, dead on even? Like, let's get it to sort of 60, 40 or something um, and see where we end up there. Because it just, it seems ridiculous that if you are like, you know, the top 10 doing the same thing in the entire world compared to someone else who is male and doing that thing, you're getting paid that much less, like that much less. Of course, a lot of people say me, okay, there are more male athletes in the world trying to do that, et cetera, et cetera. So then you you know, your, your pyramid is larger to get to the top. And I agree, but it should never be that big of a gap. 3 million to 18,000 uh, per year is not a, re a representative gap of that difference. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not something that, you know, if I, if, if I was a girl or if I had a little girl, you know, it would be like, she would look at that to be she'd be like, ah, that's not a viable way of me making a living, but there are other avenues women can take so that they can kind of move the focus over to them. Like they, in my, in my perspective would be, okay, okay. We're not there yet with the athletes. But let's get more commentators, more uh, sports analysts, more coaches. And I think we're starting to see a little bit more of that happening right now. What's your perspective on that? The, I think you raised such a good point. I mean, the coaches and the analysts one is so accurate. Like there is absolutely no reason there shouldn't be, you know, like as many um, female analysts slash coaches than there are men's because that 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 is now a mental capacity it's a mental objective to perform a job so it's got no shall we say physical barriers so it shouldn't be the case that it's so um male dominated i understand so far it's been sort of the experience within the industry and the legacy of that that can change that can change so i, I agree with you especially you know um from a training perspective from a, a qualifications perspective we should literally be giving every opportunity to women um to try and yeah access some of these these um, job roles because that is a way that this that yeah the the money that is being generated in sport can be more in, evenly distributed and again even that provides role models right like if if you, you're a little girl and you go and watch um sport you know with your parents for example and you never see one female face on the screen you think oh sport's not for me i want to do something else and that's yeah that's not how it should be 
Now, um, just a little bit of a little bit of clarification of why I'm going into the women's side of this. This podcast is specifically for, you know, guys that are having trouble with finding their place in their world. Like us guys, we still have women in our lives and they will look to us for inspiration. They will look to us for guidance, especially our daughters, our nieces, our, um, our cousins. And if their heart and soul is put in a sport, okay, maybe they might not be able to uh, play the sport at the level or get paid for or get, or get compensated for the sport that they love as, uh, as, a, as a boy or a male, there are different avenues that they can take in order for them to profit from it and to be like Benjamin said, like be that role model. Yes. And like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a father at the moment, but I hope, hope one day to be. And I've always said, it doesn't matter um, like whatever my kids' preferences are, whatever their sex is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It does not matter. There are just some fundamentals that will be in place. One, all of my kids will try sport. They will try it like to see if it's for them. They'll try a few, couple of different sports. They'll be given the time and the resources to make sure that they, they can make an educated decision if they do or do not want to do that thing. Of course, I'm never going to force my child to be a sports person. I know sometimes that's a classic parent, sport, a sports-loving parent thing to do, right? Is push their child to achieve sporting things they never did. I'm not that guy, but they'll be given that avenue. And then in terms of the support, it doesn't matter if I have you know um, five boys or five girls or whatever that my kids will have a healthy relationship with sport in the same way I do. And it's something I would like to share with them and something a family could do together as in like, this is our team. Um, and I've noticed that in my own family, it's actually probably the thing we end up talking about the most is we're all big um, Liverpool football club supporters. And it's a really nice thing to talk about within a family because it's this kind of external thing. It's something we all care about. It's something we want to succeed, but it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's got no stake. It's not the, um, it's not the, the the dinner we ruined last Sunday or something like that. It is entirely independent of us. So if we win, we win together. And we lose, we lose together. Which we're going to be shifting gears a little bit now into what you just talked about. And uh, we want to talk about the mental health in sports. Um, and I want to look at both, both, both aspects, the athletes aspects and the fan aspect, because I think both are critical for us to really, um, really get a grasp at for athletes, let's focus on the athletes for a little while. How hard mentally is it for an athlete to lace up the shoes, lace up the skates, put on that jersey and get out there in front of 20, 50, 100,000 fans? I, I think it is probably hard, as hard as it's ever been. One, they're just the sheer number of eyes on you and the sheer number of cameras. If you mess up at any moment, at any point, everyone will know about it instantaneously compared to what they used to do. You know, when you played back in the, in the fifties and sixties that, you know, the most people would ever just see would be the newspaper report of how well you played. So it, it's a, it's, it's a different world in that regard. Um, I also think there's a very interesting element that is happening with uh, sport at the moment around um, long-term livelihood, because the data is now available to us of since a lot of sports went professional and people dedicated, you know, a huge degree of their, of their teens, twenties and thirties to it. What happens right afterwards, right? Um, you know, these athletes at 22, they think, Oh, like, this is amazing. I'm living the dream, but they literally know that in 15 years time, give or take, which is not a long time. When you think about your whole career, that you should be 40, 50 years, 
they not only will they be out of a job, they will probably be unemployable. Some of them can be coaches. Some of them can be analysts. Some of them can be commentators, but they're just not that demand for that many commentators, et cetera. And even in terms of the analysts and the pundits and stuff, I've noticed that there is this new breed of punditry that's coming through or the or expertise that are literally non former professionals, people who have spent more time and who are more data savvy. So if you're a professional um, sports person at the moment, you basically got until you're about 35, 40 years old to make as much money as you can. This is another reason why they're going after these big salaries. So what that's doing to players' mental health, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's a very important one to be looked at. And there's a lot of evidence coming around. You know, loads of them end up, um, particularly I'm, I'm talking English soccer again, but big problem with alcoholism afterwards, big problem with uh, gambling addiction, big problem with get caught up in, in scams because, you know, a lot of scam artists know that they have some money, but that they are desperate to invest the money somehow. So they're so vulnerable to, um, yeah, loads of investment scams. And of course, these scammers know that these athletes probably don't have the acumen to see through the scams. You know, they're not financially literate to a large degree, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe that's another thing we need to do, support long-term employability and financial literacy of athletes. Well, um, you're not wrong on that because uh, you're not wrong on that at all. Because if you look at the NBA in the, in the in mid, mid 90s, you had two amazing players in the NBA, Michael Jordan and, uh, Who's the other one? The guy with all the tattoos. I'm really bad at. I'm. Really, I was really bad at basketball. Was it my, uh, Scott? No, it wasn't Scottie Pippen. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm short of five ten, so I'm also bad at basketball. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you had Michael Jordan, and his uh, his career took off. His once once his career ended, he still kept going. And the other one, oh, uh, Rodman, Dennis Rodman. And Dennis Rodman just fizzled out. Apparently, he was bankrupt at one point. Yeah. And, uh, no, bankruptcy is very common. Yeah, it, it's it, it's it's interesting to see. It's interesting to see that because it's like they both were in the same situation where they were making millions of dollars a year, and when their careers ended, one went what up, the other one went down. And uh, what do you think um, would be a logical solution for somebody? to introduce while they're in the sport i i i always have a bold suggestion around this and um you know i'll, I'll say it as many times as possible but i really don't think it'll ever be implemented because it, it almost requires overriding a bit of human nature but i think that their salaries should be distributed over a longer period of time i think the problem is particularly with the nature of sport that you almost hit, hit your peak between about 17 and 22 we're giving these young people who are literally like developmentally not there yet to be able to make very sage decisions. So much money, so much, you know, some of these uh, absolute sort of, you know, wonder kids are getting ridiculous amounts of money. We're talking, you know, 300 million pounds a week kind of situation, which, you know, would be, if I ever make that salary in my life, I'll be happy as hell. So we give that to them at 19, 20 years old. We ask them, you need, they need to manage it correctly. They need to not be exploited by a whole bunch of scammers. They need not to be leached upon by their friends and et cetera, which is such a natural thing for friends to do is be like, oh, I've got this business idea. Can you give me money? Yes. You're my 19 year old friend. Let me give you money. Disappears. That kind of stuff. We ask them to do all of this kind of thing. And then also there's that, there's that whole expectation and the whole chemistry of the brain that, you know, that they've climbed up the ladder already. So if they get to the age of 40 and they have, even if they have you know, invested in something and they're living off the interest, 
that that is bad for the brain to sort of say, oh, you were you were you know you were increasing your salary twenty percent every year during your early twenties, and now you get to forty, and your salary is going to be flat for the rest of your life, probably a bit lower with inflation. Like, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a mental paradox. Um, so yeah, my solution is to distribute their salary over a longer period of time, pay them the money for sure, but don't give it to all of them when they're twenty. Um, but of course, how could you do that? Because it would only take one club to say we're breaking that policy, and they would get all the all the wonder kids come to them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, let's transition into the fans because the fans is where um, a lot of guys—I won't say guys. There's some girls. There's some girls out there, but a lot of people out there—they uh, get a little bit too wrapped up in their teams. Like coming from Leaf Nation. I know the highs and the lows of the Leafs and I have come to expect that whenever they get into the playoffs, they're either out the first round or the second round and it hurts. It hurts bad. And some people, it leads them to really bad spaces. What is something that you can tell people to, um, to help manage that? I mean, perfect question for me because I've definitely been there. Um, for me, again, is, is Liverpool Football Club and, and probably also the South African uh, national rugby team, although they play a bit less, so it's less present. But yeah, I mean, I literally have friends who I met 10 years ago who I won't see for a while and they'll like, or like sort of acquaintances. And when we see each other again, they're like, oh, you're the Liverpool guy. Like, that's a fun thing, but it's also probably a slightly troubling thing. But that is the, the main thing of my personality. And it, you raise a point. It is very dangerous, um, particularly if there's other stuff going wrong in their life. You know, maybe they just got divorced. Maybe they're having some other mental health problems. Maybe they got fired. Maybe they're not feeling good about themselves. All of these problems. And then it can be a positive thing that there's this thing in their life that's external that is going well. But as you say, it can go badly. And yeah, the fallout from that can be quite drastic. I like to think that the, the way to manage it is, yeah, just have that healthy level of, of, of distance. Never be, quote unquote, obsessed. Um, and I mean that in the real sense of, well, people are like, oh my God, I'm obsessed. They're not actually obsessed, but you know what I mean? Don't actually be obsessed. Keep it. Um, and yeah, enjoy the, enjoy the highs and the lows as they come quite naturally. I also think something happens with sport where if your team does quite well, you'll always end up having a period where when the team starts doing badly again, as all these things happen in cycles, you'll, you almost naturally pull away because your expectations were raised. If your team does wins every single game and then you lose a game, you're like, Oh my God, no way. Whereas if your team was losing for 10 games and then they won one, it's amazing. So it's a very, it's a big old minefield of, you know, emotional management basically to be a, a diehard sports fan. That's a hard, that's a hard ask for some of these people, but I used to work for, um, somebody who, whenever the Leafs lost, and it was often, you never spoke to this guy. <laughs> you never yeah, disappeared off the radar. Yeah, you you wanted to be off that radar. Um, what would you say to somebody like that? Like who's like already die hard, no matter what they live, they breathe the the the, the club. So my, my first reaction, and again, I'm not a trained professional on this. I'm not any kind of like clinical psychologist, anything like that. But my first reaction based on what I've read would be to look at the rest of their life. What's going on? Because often when people go full, full into that, it, because they might be slightly lacking in other areas, whether that be in their relationships or something like that. And it often you hear about, a lot about that sort of, you know, the single guy who's just absolutely obsessed. As soon as he, you know, gets into a, into a, a sort of happy, wholesome relationship, maybe has a couple of kids, something like that. 
it comes down a bit because he has to redistribute his emotions a little bit. And that's really important. I think that's actually quite a healthy thing to happen in the long term. As you say, sometimes you meet these people who are just going the whole way. Um, and yeah, might probably need a, probably needs a conversation at some point to be like, listen, why is this so important to you? Um, and yeah, it's, they also have become very vulnerable. You know, I, I'm, I'm even this kind of person who every time, every year Liverpool buy, I buy like the new Liverpool jersey. But my goodness, I mean, thank God I, I'm not even more that I didn't buy all the Liverpool jerseys. If I bought every single Liverpool jersey that comes out every year, you know, they put out five jerseys a year at the moment or something, you know, including the other ones, I'd be bankrupt. So these clubs are not going to say, hey, you're obsessed too much, cool down. They're going to say, well, if, if your attention means money, come, 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 keep coming. Um, so yeah, I would just sort of say, what else is going on in this person's life that is leading them to be this obsessed? And again, if one, one or two of my friends are listening to this podcast, they'll know, Ben, you were like that a bit. And I was like, yeah, I am. It's, it's un, it's, we've, got, we've got it ahead on it. We, we're on to, in charge of things now. That, that's cool. Um, I, I know a lot of, especially in soccer, there, there's, uh, or football, there's uh, uh, organizations that surround, like fan organizations. Uh, do you think it's something important for the fan organizations to be able to spot and address yeah, that's I've never even thought about it from that perspective. I think that's a really good uh, way of doing it, particularly from like a peer-to-peer perspective. People who are in it almost as much as you to be able to turn to you and say, "Listen, this has gone too far." Um, I think a lot of those fan organizations are quite amazing institutions because it's a social thing in that sense. You know, a lot of them build it into other activities. Like, okay, we are the supporter of this team, but we do group activities on the weekend. We go to the pub together. We, I don't know, play table tennis together we go on holiday together they do all these other things that keeps life um distributed and and, and a healthy a happy medium as soon as you have shall we say these lone wolves who are sort of obsessed and by themselves that's that's problematic because you know football or any sport and the fandom of any sport should be a social activity that you share with people if you are so obsessed that you won't even talk to anyone if you lose that's a problem because what you should be doing is um sort of you know being sad with other people. Like it sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing. You know, you go, it's a bonding thing. You go through these emotional roller coasters together, it brings you together. Um, so yeah, you shouldn't be by yourself and 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 silent when your team is losing. What about when things get out of hand with with, with these organizations? And you know what I mean. <laughs> you mean like uh like hooliganism, that kind of stuff? Yeah, hooliganism. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the eternal struggle of um of uh of sports in general, particularly something like soccer. Um I, I do think it's often miscategorized. Uh, mis I think, for example, this uh, weekend, the Champions League final was an example of this, where there was these issues with like fans and and them getting taking too long to in the stadium, and UEFA were instantly like, "Oh, the, the fans were being rowdy and they were being hooligans." But I was there. There was no one being hooligans. It was literally a very orderly crowd, but it was the the fan management of the game had been poor, and it was such an easy scapegoat to be like, "Oh, they're hooligans." Having said that, of course, there are still hooligans. It's usually a very small percentage of the, the group and they will use an excuse to damage property and stuff. That is just really annoying. I think it's the worst when you're at a weekend and you're having a great time and all your mates are there and you're having a great one. And then like, yeah, some guy who's wearing the same shirt as you, but you don't actually have anything in common with just sort of throws a chair through a window and you're like, now we all look bad, so to speak. Um so yeah, I do think it also probably needs to be addressed from the, from a cultural perspective that that shouldn't be acceptable, um, but it's uh, quite built into some cultures and it'll take quite a long time to build it out, um, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, um, I've never been a part of a, a, a club organization. I've always just, you know, like the club that I like and that I just go and enjoy the game. But when I'm hearing stories, uh, Greece is pretty known for this. Um, it's, it's, and it's always like a, like, like, like you said, like one or two bad apples inside the group that are make, giving the rest of the group a bad name. And it's, um, do you think it's a good idea for the, or for the organizations, the, not the organizations, the club organizations, the fan organizations to say, you know what, we don't want you here. Get out. We, here's your money back. We don't care. Just go. I, I I think it does happen to some degree. I know now if if a fan is caught on camera and like good evidence behind doing something bad, they can get banned. The one I'm thinking of in particular, there was a Chelsea fan when Chelsea were playing away in Paris about five or six years ago who was caught on camera just being just the worst people ever. They were like this this um, uh, person of African descent was trying to get on the Metro in Paris, not even a football fan, just a, a Parisian. They were trying to get on, on, on the... Um, uh, metro and these chelsea fans are just pushing them off the metro each time like basically you know essentially assault with some kind of racial undertone and that was you know horrendous hooligan like style behavior those fans were then found out and were banned by the club i think that's perfectly acceptable um yeah. behavior and i i hope that they could do that for yeah as a deterrent for anyone else considering such weird um behavior and behavior that somehow they tried justified by you know, they wouldn't do that when they were by themselves. So, yeah, I'm very happy for the clubs to get involved. Uh, I agree. I, I mean, there, there's there's a certain line that we shouldn't be crossing. Like uh, from a lifelong Leaf fan, I've been to Montreal to go watch the Leafs play the Cabs. And it's just, you know, you're throwing your two cents. They're throwing their two cents back at you. And it's it's off the cusp. Who cares, right? It, yeah. it, when it starts to get personal is when it changes and yeah, we, I mean, we need to find the, that line. Yeah. I, my example, I always remember, um, I used to work for a, a company up in, in Birmingham in the UK, a renewable energy company. And everyone on that office floor was a, a football fan, like a quite a big football fan, but of loads of different teams. And not once did it ever get nasty. Like I almost relished coming in on a Monday morning, whether I'd lost or when I'd won just because of the back and forth, you know, the banter, so to speak. Um, it was great. It was that perfect level of like, you know, if we, if my team won, I'd get given whatever. And if there's, you, you give the chat back. It never was unpleasant. Can you imagine if it had been? Can you imagine how that would have disrupted, you know, the workflow, how you enjoyed your, your job, the company objectives, all these kind of things would have been disrupted because people just took it too far. Um, so yeah, interesting point. Cool. Uh, we're coming close to the end of the show now. Uh, okay. These are the seven or eight questions I ask all my guests. I'd just like to get your perspective on uh, these seven or eight topics. With the increase in people suffering from depression, from the constant lockdowns and lockdowns, all this uncertainty that we're living in, what would be the one thing that you could tell them to keep their hopes up? Uh, social, social interactions and social engagements. I just think it doesn't matter. And I've, I have experienced um, some depression in my life in towards the back end of COVID. And, you know, it was way worse and way more difficult than I thought it, would, it could be. And I'm much more sympathetic and understanding than I think I, I used to think I was sympathetic and understanding. Now I'm way more sympathetic and understanding because yeah, some people just think it's so easy and it's not. And yeah, the my number one solution. And, and I think a lot of research backs this up is 
to get yourself back into these social situations. Um, I'd even say to try and make any question about sport, the difference of going to gym by yourself when you're depressed versus going to have a much more relaxed uh, game of Frisbee with friends. Do the second one. You think it's not as much calorie burning, that kind of thing, but it's, you, you, you're getting something else. And that is that social interaction, which, you know, humans are social creatures. And um, it's always going to be a little bit easier when you've got people around you. Awesome. Uh, what's the one thing that you do daily that amplifies your ability to stay focused? Oof. That is a very good question. Perhaps troubling that I can't immediately think what that is. Um, I think for me, it is probably um, exercise. I think I, there's a there's a meditative element to, to my exercise. I even specifically, um, when I do like uh, my football or gym, I go to a place that's about 20 minutes walk away. There's one closer, but I like that 20 minute walk of just to sort of, you know, get some music on, throw focus about what I'm going to do and then come back. And I find when I hit my desk after doing something like that, I'm way more focused than I would be if I rolled straight out of bed. Cool. If you could pick up the phone right now and call yourself at 20 years old, what would you tell yourself? Oh, 20 years old. Oh, so many things. I'm not yet 29 years old and I could write 10 books of what I've learned in just those years. Um, I just think the, the phrase, and I think I have said this something, said something to this effect on another podcast, but everything in moderation everything in moderation. And I mean, on both ends, there have been times when I was 20 that I worked myself, you know, three all nighters or something to try and get in, the, in an assignment that didn't really matter. So there's that end of it. And there's this thing of like, you know, of course, when I was at university, you know, I'd go to a few parties, have a good time, enjoy yourself, but, you know, also go to class and learn something. It's just, you know, I think at 20 years old, we're, our, our bodies are probably slightly primed that way, but we're all about extremes and there's just a happy middle. Looking back, would you change anything? Uh, it's a hard one to say because you may make mistakes and you then learn from them. And I'm not sure if someone had told me the lesson, would I have taken it on board as much? The best way to really learn something is to mess it up. And then you learn the second time. So that's a tough one to say. But I think it sounds a bit of a cliche, but like I'd always say, always go for it. And I, what I mean by that is, no one very people if you regret like attempting something and failing that regret lasts about a day or two i find whereas if you didn't do something or didn't try and and then you know wondered what could have been for the rest of your life you might regret it for the rest of your life so always always give it a go always try awesome very 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 great answer uh what scares you oh dear um lack of impact I think. And what I mean by that is definitely, obviously my podcast is an example of this, but even in my own life, I would just hate to have think, thought that I spend my entire life just existing and not making some difference in some way. And I don't just obviously don't just mean salary, et cetera. I do mean sort of improving other people's lives and that kind of thing. And sometimes that seems quite hard. And sometimes it seems like you're not having that effect. And that, that definitely scares me. Awesome. Where do you see sustaining sports podcast in the next five years? Oh, five years. It's only been going a year and a half. So it's hard to think in that time frame. But um, yeah, I'd like to think within five years, I would have covered almost all of the topics uh, that I would want to have covered and found those expertise, but then would have maybe built up a network of, of recurring themes and also recurring expertise. So it would be great to have something that exists 
almost independently from my other work that I'm doing that can just be a constant check-in for people who have questions around, you know, the future of sport and, and where, where the threats are and yeah, what progress is being made just as a resource that they can always check into. And I also, the reason I didn't put, for example, my name in the podcast, which is quite tempting is that I wouldn't mind if, at all if it was became bigger than myself and we got more people involved because yeah, I just think it'd be a cool resource. And I, promise to uh, any potential listeners on your podcast who might have come across to my podcast it'll always be free at least the fundamental content will always be free because i believe in this kind of information is important and it should not be a barrier to access it very good very good what about you personally where do you see yourself in the next five years so i would quite like my work to reflect a lot of these values that i i um underline in my podcast you know around making a difference within sport so i'd love to see myself in some kind of institution that is making that kind of difference. I've actually just started off in the last couple of months with two potential institutions, which I really like, and um, I'm enjoying working with them. So yeah, if those, if one of those or both of those were to continue to go and to grow, and I could sort of start seeing the return on some of those um, actions that are being made, that would just be a perfect five-year outcome. Great, very great. Um, where can people find more about you? So uh, my podcast is called Sustaining Sport and pretty much everything around that is those words. So the website is uh, sustainingsport.com. I'm on, uh, there's a LinkedIn page, Sustaining Sport. There's a Facebook page, Sustaining Sport. There's an Instagram account, Sustaining Sport. And you can message me on any of those and uh, I'll get back to you straight away. I have Twitter. That is not called Sustaining Sport because there's a dead account that has that handle. And if anyone can knows that person who just doesn't tweet and has that handle and can give me that handle, I'd love it. But it's called Sustained Sport Pod on Twitter. But also on Twitter, I have my own account, uh, BenMoll11. So if you want a bit of a more personal conversation, find me on there. And yeah, happy to have a dialogue with anyone about anything. And we will list all your links in the show notes so everybody has easy access to you and your content. Much appreciated. Of course. Uh, any final thoughts? I mean, yeah, just a, almost a question back to you. Do you, did you have any thoughts around sport in, in the way that we've discussed this when you were um, growing up as a sports fan or have these thoughts come to you more recently based on how the world has sort of changed? Uh, interesting. Um, to be honest with you, uh, I grew up in the martial arts world and sports mm. to me was more of a, a Saturday, Saturday night hockey, Saturday night hockey at my grandmother's house and just, you know, the whole family getting together and watching the Leafs play. Uh, so it really, to me, it was more of a, a family get together uh, mm. where the martial arts world is where my passion was and still is. Like for, I'm forever a martial artist and it was, it's hard to see martial artists in like, in that kind of context that, you know, you'd see the Leafs or Liverpool or Manchester United, or, mm. you know, these other clubs, because there's no club of martial arts. It's the dojo that you're a part of. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's very cool that you had that contrast and there's almost healthy balance between those two worlds. Cause it is all sport at the end of the day. Um, and there's value in both. Uh, and I think sometimes I, in my life, I've got too focused on the professional sport and the watching and less of the doing, uh, and there's value in the doing. And thank you for answering that question because I was like, 
thinking this entire time. I'm like, I'm just giving him my opinion on all this stuff. But hang on, he's a sports fan too. What, what, what's his perspective on this? So thank you for that. No problem. No problem. And thank you, ben- Benjamin, for everything that you do. Thank you for this great conversation. Um, I literally did not expect I had a whole different kind of topic to be talking about but this was so juicy this is so great and to get your perspective on uh some of these topics were really really great and your podcast is again uh, i highly suggest everybody going over to sustaining sport and um listening in on your podcast because it's uh it really gives a really great perspective of you know how we can make this available for everybody and make it a like like a profession and how to figure different stuff out, different different professions to make things work for us properly the way that we want it. So thank you so much for the, your hard work. No, you're so welcome. And yeah, thank you for having me on and to your listeners, thank you for listening in. And I'm just always very grateful when anyone uh, gives me five minutes because I have a lot to talk about and um, a lot of problems to be fixed and I can never do it by myself. So the more the people know and the more they're interested in engaging, the better we're gonna do. Going through hard times is just a test. What you need to know is that when you get out of whatever you're going through, you will be stronger than ever before, and you don't need to go through it alone. Always know that you are not alone. Stay tuned for more real people with amazing stories that are just like yours. Until then, to everyone out there listening, I wish you a good morning, good afternoon, or good night, wherever you may be in this crazy world. Hey everybody, it's John from Resilient Reboot Productions and the Fitness Oracle. Thank you for watching this episode and I really hope that you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to subscribe, hit the bell and share this video if you are watching this on YouTube or on Rumble. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast Breaker or whatever streaming service that you may be using, please give us a five-star rating and a positive res- review as, as it will help us reach more people that are suffering from mental health issues. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to join us on Pod Inbox. This is a great platform that we can keep the conversation going. Over the years, we've discovered that the best way to help people regain their confidence back of whatever fitness goal that they are looking for is to put together a tight-knit community that will be here to support you in that journey. So in order for us to do that, we are partnering up with Pod Inbox to help us create that platform and give you that opportunity to uh, have your voice, have your voice heard. So all you have to do is click on the link below in the show notes and get your set up your free account on Pod Inbox right now and let's hear your voice. So I can't wait to start talking to you guys there. It's going to be a it's a great platform for all of us to get together and discuss the issues that are that we're suffering from. Until then, I'll see you guys soon.